ask that you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of James. Pastor Greco, of course, has been marching methodically through Romans, and most recently in Romans 12, speaking about the marks of the Christian. It's interesting to see how God in His providence um, gives us this passage we're getting ready to work through here in James at the end of chapter 1, which deals with some tests of true religion or pure religion. Um, James is, is, is a great book. It's, it's kind of challenging um, for me. I'm sure it's challenging for you as the hearers to, to look at um, a text only every few months. Um, but if, if there's a book that, that lends itself to this, I think James does, because James sometimes could be accused of having a short attention span because he deals with one topic and then he jumps over here to something else and he deals with something else. And, and sometimes you get a little bit whiplash thinking, okay, where is he going? But what James is trying to do, he's trying to give us a, a well-rounded understanding of what new life in Christ means, what it means to be a believer, how it works itself out. And here in this text, he gives us three tests of pure religion or true Christianity. When we last considered James, uh, we received a, a sober warning about hearing but not doing the word. And the flip side of that was there was a great blessing that came for those that did hear and receive and then do the word of God. James was so bold to say that the one who hears the word but then fails to obey it is deceived. And James again, that word deception and deceiving comes up again. He warns us of another deception, but this time it's in relation to our speech. He's already spoken about anger and often anger manifests itself in our words. But here he tells us that we deceive ourselves if we have a form of religion and fail to bridle our tongue. Our text this morning is the final two verses. Um, I was tempted to read this entire chapter, but for sake of time, I think we'll just back up to verse 16. So please join me as we read God's word together. And before we do, let me pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading of his holy word. Lord God, we need you and we are grateful for the work that you are doing in your people Lord, we thank you that your word has been given to us as our authority, as a guide, and as a way to understand you and who you are and your ways and your work in us and what you require of us as your children. Lord, give us humility to sit under its authority, convince us anew of its inerrancy and its beauty, and and I pray that you would by your spirit, through your word, speak to us. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James 1, 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this morning in his holy and inerrant word. It's interesting to notice the connections in and the progression of this chapter, this first chapter of James. We have been admonished to be slow to speak, and here we are told that we must bridle our tongue. We've seen the new birth in verse 18 and how that blossoms into the blessed life when we hear and do the word. Today in verses 26 and 27, we see three distinct marks of that new life that we have in Christ. James is not here giving us a comprehensive list of all the marks of Christianity, yet he is giving us a test and it's helping us to see what true or pure religion looks like. For our purposes this morning, I've phrased them as actions that we must do. First of all, we must control the tongue. Secondly, we must care for the afflicted. And we must pursue personal holiness. Controlling the tongue, caring for the afflicted, and pursuing personal holiness. Now, I know a preacher is supposed to have alliteration where all of them begin with C. So, um, I just... I, I, I decided to keep the P at the end to pursue personal holiness. But it's possible for us to be deceived. In April of last year, there was a small art museum in southern France who hired an art historian to reorganize its collection in the museum. And in the work of this reorganization, this historian came to notice some things that weren't quite right. In the end, they realized that 60% of this museum's collection, art collection, was a fraud, was a fake. The, the materials in the, in the frame uh, that the canvas of the paintings were mounted on were not fitting for the era that they were supposed to be from. The, the, the museum had just purchased about 80 paintings, and they realized that all of those were a fake or a fraud. That museum had been deceived, and probably had devastating consequences upon a small museum. And so much the more, if we are deceived, we can be deceived with devastating consequences. Our text this morning opens with the condition, says, if anyone thinks he is religious. Well, if we're thinking about our English language, usually when we see an if, we expect A then. While the word then is not in our text, it is certainly implied in the natural consequences that come as a result of the condition listed there in the if. If this, then that. 
Well, if one thinks they are religious but fails to meet certain standards, then what? James says their religion is worthless. What strong words these are that come from the pen of James. And then we would be wise then to pay attention to what is between the if and the implied then. So what is he saying? That person whose religion is worthless is the one that, A, think they are religious, B, fails to bridle their tongue, and thereby, C, deceiving their own heart. Now, we look at that word religious, and we might think that that shows up a lot in Scripture. I did a quick search on that and realized that it's only twice in, the, in, in our version, the ESV, that that word shows up. Only here and in Acts 17. Well, recall with me when in Acts 17, Paul is preaching, preaching in Athens in the Areopagus. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He is referring to their worship of idols because as he passed through the city, he saw all the objects of their worship. James here is not talking about idol worship, but rather the outward expressions of one's faith. I think that could be a good definition for religion in this context. The outward expression of our faith. We see here that a person can have the appearance of good religion... when in reality they are deceived. Think of what our Lord Jesus said about the Pharisees, quoting the prophet Isaiah when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Remember the Pharisees who who we look on typically with scorn, we, we've taken that word and, and, and used it to actually describe those that are hypocritical. If, if a person says you're being pharisaical, that is not a kind term. But remember that they were very much a part of the worship of God in their day. They were the people that, that tried to keep the law. And they, they did it to the oppression of others. And this should serve as a warning to us, saints of God, that we can have a form of religion... That is simply in our mind and not reflected in a heart that is truly changed, as James tells us that it should be. This person that James is telling us about in verse 26 is a person that thinks they are religious, but does not bridle their tongue. So what does it mean to bridle the tongue? We know that a bridle, along with the bit and the reins, are used to control a horse. And to direct a horse in the way that that the rider wants it to go. It also helps to stop the horse. So to bridle the tongue is to direct it in a godly way. And to stop it when needed. The book of Proverbs has much to say about the tongue. We are warned in chapter 10, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Or in chapter 17, verse 27, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, but he who ha- and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. There's much wisdom in guarding and controlling our mouth and our words. There's often wisdom in not speaking. However, James is not simply saying, be quiet. He's saying, our tongues need restrained. He'll deal with this in... In, in greater um, detail and intensity in chapter 3. 
But here we're just given a taste of his convicting words. And James is saying, be careful, you can be deceived. Be careful with your words. In chapter 3, he likens the tongue to a, a wild beast that needs tamed. In that light, we must learn to restrain our tongues. There's such a danger in, in our words, and we have to consider it. We can come to church on Sunday and sing, Oh, come, my soul, bless thou the Lord. And then we can speak with angry and hateful words to even those in our family. We can pray and praise and worship, and then we can slander our brother and sister in Christ. But a bridled tongue should be concerned about promoting and preserving truth between men. A bridled tongue is concerned with the good name of its neighbor. A bridled tongue stands for the truth. It speaks the truth from the heart freely and sincerely. It defends others. It acknowledges freely other people's gifts and graces. It easily receives and repeats a good report and would rather not hear and is very careful not to repeat an evil report. Knowing rumors and gossip can be spread easily. A bridled tongue never engages in slander or false reports. A bridled tongue studies and speaks what is true, honest, lovely, and of a good report. These are all things from the Westminster Larger Catechism that answers the question, what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? I hope you know that the Ninth Commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. These are practical outworkings of what that commandment requires. And while it is possible to sin against our neighbor in ways other than with our tongue, the primary way is through our words. One has said, if your lips would keep from slips, these things observe with care of whom you speak and how you speak and why and when and where. So beware also of even using the truth as an excuse to gossip. Because just because something is true doesn't mean that it necessarily needs to be told If we see a brother or sister fall into sin, we should be grieved over their sin. We should not be eager to publish it. Galatians tells us that we who are spiritual should should seek to restore them with a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you also are tempted, Galatians 6.1 tells us. Hopefully, it's easy to see that the words that come from our mouth really are rooted in our heart. Jesus said, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words are a gauge of our hearts. If we're not guarding our heart, then we are allowing our heart to be deceived, and our words will show that deception. Do you see how this test works? The true child of God guards his heart and his tongue, and our words are a gauge of our heart. We go on. Not only does the true child of God control their tongue, they also care for the afflicted. What is pure and undefiled religion? James tells us in verse 27 that one component is to visit the orphans and the widow in their affliction. Notice how James identifies God in this verse. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, and then he explains that. He calls God the Father. 
that, and remember, it was of the Father's will that he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He says in verse 18 that he is our father and we are his children and, and we should bear that family resemblance. We should look like our father. When a child is born, I, I know people in my family often look at the characteristics of that newborn baby and try to figure out whether they look more like their father or their mother or their aunt or their uncle. There should be a family resemblance to us within the family of God. We should bear the family resemblance. And God is concerned with defending those who are left defenseless in our society. Psalm 68 reminds us that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows. And we, like our Heavenly Father, must be concerned with orphans and widows too. And not just orphans and widows. I think, I think Scripture uses those because in that day, those were the most vulnerable. Those were the ones that were most likely to be penniless and defenseless in, in that time. But we must have compassion on all those who are in need. This word visit here, as, as it's translated in our Bibles, means to look upon in order to help or benefit. Think about when Jesus was upon this earth and he was in the city of Nain. And scripture tells us about a widow there whose son had died. It, it, it might have been a young man. It could have even been an adult son who was there and caring for his mother who was a widow. He, was, he had died and, and Jesus encountered the funeral procession. And he was, this man was the only son of his mother and she was very much in need. And Jesus had compassion on him, on her. He spoke to the dead man. The dead man is raised to life. He is restored to his mother. And what was it that the people said? The people said that God had visited his people. He had come in the hour of their distress, as was exemplified in restoring this man to his widowed mother. God had compassion on him. Let me ask you, how and when are you visiting, considering and helping those who are afflicted? The word that our Bible translates afflicted has the idea of of pressure and oppression. John Blanchard says that it is suffering brought about by the pressure of circumstances. Now, we all have pressure of circumstances, I think. And in some ways, we all are suffering and and are afflicted. But there are certain ones among us, even within our own church, that are suffering that severely and acutely. And I think if you think, you don't have to think very long. You can look at our prayer requests list and think of a number of individuals that are very near you that are suffering, that are afflicted. Some are pressured by unemployment or underemployment. Some face the pressure of children with special needs. Some are suffering chronic illness. Some are grieving over the loss of loved ones. Some are suffering from fractured relationships. Some are suffering homelessness or mental illness. If we look in the world around us, there are many complex problems where people are severely afflicted within them. It could also be whole people groups who are systemically oppressed and denied opportunity. And let me just take this opportunity to say that racism is a terrible sin and should never characterize those who call themselves God's children. I also want to say that I can think of no group that is more defenseless and forgotten in parts of our society than the unborn. 
The scourge of abortion upon our nation is a heinous sin. And we as God's people need to fight against it with our prayer, with our dollars, and with our time. I also want to say that the afflicted could also include those who have had abortions and are suffering as a result of that as well. Remember what our Lord said to his followers as he was teaching them about the judgment day. He said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. And conversely, when, when he was accusing the wicked of not ministering in his name, he said, those who did not have compassion on those who were sick and in prison. Jesus said, when you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it unto me. Alistair Begg shares the illustration of when he was a young minister and, and under the, the care and supervision of an older pastor. And he, one of his responsibilities was to visit old people in, in their homes or in nursing homes. And, and often because he would go in the afternoons and, and perhaps it was made worse by medication. But many times he would go and he would try to visit and try to, to minister the word, you know, read the word to them, pray with them, whatever he did. And they would sleep. They would sleep the whole time. Some of them probably didn't even recognize that he was there. And he, he, he spoke to this, his supervising minister and he said, why am I doing this? Why, what good is this if they, just, if they just sleep through this whole time? His supervising minister said, you are not just ministering to that person. You are ministering to Christ. We must keep that in mind that as we minister, we are ministering God's mercy and grace. And we are doing it in obedience and in reflection of the love of our Father. Often it's hard to know how to help in some of these huge crises that I mentioned. The homeless, the mentally ill. How do, you, how do we end abortion? How do we end racism? Well, first of all, we should pray. We can, we can, there's, there's much work to do upon our knees. We can get to know people that are not like us. What if we went out of our way to listen to the stories of families that don't look like us? I have a friend from, uh, that graduated seminary a little bit before I did. He's a big, tall, white guy. He played basketball with a lot of African Americans. And God placed upon his heart a desire to minister to African Americans in the inner city. And Scott and his family built a home and moved to the Trinity Gardens of Mobile, Alabama. And I don't know Mobile very well, but I was sharing this with somebody that I had met recently from Mobile. And, and, and when I said Trinity Gardens, their, their eyes kind of got big because they were like, wow, he lives there. But he is there giving of himself, ministering to those in that community, showing the love of Christ to them. It's a, it's, a, it's a community and it's a neighborhood that's riddled with crime. He's had, he's had people in his church gunned down, not, necess- not in his church, but, but he's seen and living among people that are suffering. Uh, that is not everyone's calling, but we need to have a heart of compassion that would compel us to do things like that. The second test that James gives us of pure religion is that. Are you caring for the oppressed? Are you, do you have compassion upon them? I think of our Lord Jesus when he looked upon the people of Israel. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They were scattered and he had compassion upon them. Finally, James says that pure religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pursuing 
personal holiness, keeping yourself unstained from the world. Yesterday, I helped my son change the oil on his car. I wasn't planning to change the oil on, at that time. I was doing something inside. I had a white t-shirt on, but he needed some help, and I went out and helped him. I was very careful to make sure that he did all the dirty work, pulled the, the oil plug out of the pan, so if there was oil splashing everywhere, it got on him and not me. Fortunately, I was successful in not getting oil on my shirt, because a stain like that is hard to remove. What is a stain? A stain is a foreign material that that becomes part of the fabric of your clothing. It's not supposed to be there, but yet it has become part of the fabric of that garment. Here James is pointing to the fact that we can be stained by the world. The world can become part of us. Therefore, we must strive to keep ourselves unstained from the world. But what is this world as James uses the word? Well, first John admonishes us not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. And then he says, for the, for the love of the world is, is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Without going into unpacking all that's in each of those phrases, I think we can say for our purposes today that the world is anything that opposes God or his will. Or I like the way David Wells says it. It's whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And James is saying, don't be stained by that influence. Don't let that thinking become part of the fabric of your life. Now we can read this and we can, we can look at James's words and we can say, oh, well, James just wants us to be these stuck-up, pietistic people where we are too good for the sinners around us. That's not what James is saying. Look what he's just said. He's saying, have compassion on those who are afflicted. The people that are, that are dirty and needy, we're supposed to have compassion for them and minister to them, but we, need, we can do that in a way that we're not stained by the world and its influences. We don't do that in a way that makes us look down our noses at other people. We do it in a way that makes us look up to Christ and seeking to to reflect the the holiness that that we're commanded in Scripture. So what what does this holiness look like? What is its goal and what is its practice? Well, God commanded holiness. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it in Leviticus where he says, Be ye holy as I am holy. First Peter repeats that. And he says to be holy in, in all your conduct. And then he quotes that, that uh, passage from the Old Testament again. But remember that we are saved for the purpose of holiness. Well, certainly we are saved because of God's love and mercy and grace. We're saved to the praise of his name but Ephesians, 4, or Ephesians 1, 4 says that we are chosen in Him that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Too many times we pass over that and we rejoice in our salvation, but we, and we fail to recognize that, that God's one of His purposes in, in calling a people is that we can reflect the holiness that is our God. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we bring glory to God in our obedience. We show our love for Christ when we obey His commands. 
He said, uh, Jesus said in John 14, 21, Whoever hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. The goal is to reflect that family likeness, that family resemblance that we talked about earlier. We are called to be holy as God our Father is holy. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking, and I am too. I I fail. I'm not very holy. My life doesn't measure up. Well, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came and Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father's will. He, he obeyed for us, but not so that we don't have to obey, so that we can obey out of joyful love and service to him. The goal is to pursue Christ-likeness. For God's glory. We seek to be like Christ. Romans 8 tells us that we have been predestined to be conformed to Christ's image. So the goal is Christ's likeness for God's glory. But what does it look like in practice? Well, Scripture tells us in, in so many ways and various metaphors, it, it helps us understand what it means to pursue personal holiness. We, we've already mentioned that Christ's likeness is the goal, but Christ's likeness, Christ as our example, is one way in which we pursue holiness. We rest in his obedience, but we also remember his commands to obedience. We seek to love the law, not not thinking of the law as an oppressor upon us, but as something that reveals God's character and something that gives us instruction to understand what our loving Heavenly Father requires of us as His people. Our holiness involves working out what God works in us. It is not simply that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. There is honest, hard effort to holiness. We are called to mortify sin, but yet it is the Spirit that works in us. Philippians 2.12 tells us that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And then it goes on right into the next verse that reminds us that God is at work in us. The Spirit works. We work. It involves Spirit-filled, gospel-driven effort. Pursuing holiness involves putting off and putting on. Ephesians 4 talks about and and uses that language for a variety of things. It says to put off the old self and to put on the new self. And then he goes on with specifics. He says, put away falsehood and instead speak truth. Let the thief steal no more. Let him labor with his hands. Set aside corrupting talk and instead speak life, giving and grace-filled words. Lay aside bitterness and anger and replace it with kindness And forgiveness, it says, at the end of chapter 4. It involves also saying no to sin. Titus 2 tells us that for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We are called to honest effort to fight against our sin. J.C. Ryle has said, The child of God has two great marks about him. His inner peace... And his inner warfare. His inner peace knowing that he is justified fully before God. There's nothing more he can do to increase his standing before God. Yet knowing that there is sin abiding in him that needs to be killed. It's a constant warfare. B. 
Be killing sin, as John Owen says, or it will be killing you. And finally, a life of pursuing personal holiness involves repentance. We do that every week as we come together. We should be quick to repent. When we sin, we should recognize that it it grieves our Heavenly Father and it fractures our relationships upon earth. But when we sin, 1 John tells us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we must quickly run to Him for mercy and forgiveness. These are just some of the ways that Bible helps us to see practically what holiness looks like. We are to keep ourselves from the influences and the stains of the world and its opposition to Christ. As we close, I want to offer one word of warning. I think there can be a danger, especially in the second and third points that we've discussed, in, in having compassion upon the needy, the afflicted, and upon pursuing holiness, that Christianity could come, become reduced to simple charity and morality. There are those, and, and more than a few, who would, that are within the, the church in our nation who would say, look, I'm a good person. Often when you come to people and you ask them, you know, why, why will, you, will you go to heaven and why will you go to heaven? And a lot of them say, because I'm a pretty good person. And they do that because they compare themselves with the next person and they don't want to examine their hearts in light of Scripture. But James is not simply calling us to a false morality or a morality that only compares ourselves with each other. He's calling us to obedience, to reflect the family likeness of our Heavenly Father. He's calling us to put away sin, to receive and hear and do the word that's been implanted in us. We are to follow closely to God, to carefully guard our speech, to bridle our tongues, to care for the helpless, and to pursue a life of holiness for the glory of God. Let us pray.